Hey, it's the FinTech Newscast. My name is John, and with me, as always, is Steve. How are you doing? John, John, I am uh, well and looking forward to some AI questions today. Yeah, AI. Not like uh, where I work, where there's uh, real stupidity. There's actually artificial intelligence that we can rely on as well. <laughs> oh, man. All right. We have uh, Shamik Kundu, the head of financial services and chief strategy officer at TrueEra. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John and Steve. Really good to be back here. Yeah, yeah. You joined us back in uh, December of last year. And this has actually been a really interesting nine months. Uh, I've seen so much about uh, uh, regulatory issues, about uh, discrimination, about transparency, uh, about a lot more uh, compliance, uh, trying to figure out the rules around this. Um, anything uh, new that you'd like to highlight uh, around the uh, compliance side that's popped up? Yeah, I think that there's a, as you mentioned, there's a lot of activity that is visible in the forefront, and there's also a lot that's going on in the background. So what what has happened in this particular space in the last uh, nine months is uh, a few regulators, um, both in in banking and and beyond, uh, making some very explicit statements around reiteration of of the need to exp- provide adequate reasons when adverse action is taken, reiterating the need to uh, follow all the requirements around fair lending and other fairness legislation. Uh, And a lot of that has come from the CFPB um, in the context of provide accurate explanations to customers when rejecting them or in the context of um, being fair uh, to them and ensuring that the, the fairness requirements are met. There's also been something, some stuff outside banking, including in the New York state and several other states uh, that have put in requirements around fairness in algorithmic hiring uh, decisions. Uh, and of course, outside the US as well, there's been a lot of activity, including close to home. And in, in Canada, uh, there's been um, a, a lot of uh, work around both national level AI regulation, as well as uh, specific stuff for the financial sector. So yeah, a lot going on in in the forefront. There's also a lot of discussions in the background around the policy initiatives that need to be taken uh, to bring up um, the regulatory framework to the requirements of of, of an AI-enabled world. So at least I'll feel a little bit better when I get rejected. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I know you say that in jest, but actually it's probably a bit more than just feeling better. It's actually giving you enough information to know what you can do to improve your chances of success in the future. Oh, that's pretty interesting. So can you tell us um, in terms of what's going on in, in the state of New York, how are they changing the way that data is used now for banking purposes? Uh, so the New York piece is uh, the the New York piece I mentioned. That's specifically around recruitment, um, and that actually requires that when you use algorithms, not just AI, any kind of automated decision making around recruitment, um, which of course includes a lot of banking recruitment as well, uh, you must uh, kind of prove that there has been a fairness audit, etc. But but more broadly, I, in many ways, um, Steve, it's not necessarily a new requirement. What it's saying, that's particularly the CFPB's pieces, they're just reminding lenders in this instance that, hey, please remember, you are meant to provide accurate adverse action notices whenever uh, a customer is is impacted adversely as a result of your decision making. And that extends to the use of artificial intelligence techniques. So even if you want to use AI, that's great. But if that means you cannot give accurate explanations, that's where the CFPB is is warning you. And then similarly, so it's not necessarily new regulatory requirement. It's more reminding people that the existing stuff absolutely applies to AI, even if it's much more difficult to implement in the AI context. 
quite interesting. So I know that um, I recently was denied a credit increase on my credit card, even though I have a good income, good good um, debt to income ratio and all that. Yeah, but they yeah. wouldn't you tell say me why. Do. Oh, I say I do, yeah. Um, but they, they wouldn't tell me why, which is sort of a black box decision. And I'm wondering, what would the new framework look like for me to understand why I was rejected for a credit, a credit increase? Yeah, so I mean, again, I, I'm I'm not aware of your specific instance, obviously, but you <laughs> should be able to get and uh, like both the reason for rejection as well as in some instances the the adverse, uh, which is the notice, as well as what you can do uh, potentially to improve your chances. I, I don't know whether that extends to credit card limit extension, but certainly if it was actual credit rejection, you would be able to expe- uh, expect that. I think so you can say new- you were yeah. slightly rejected or in your case, Steve, you were completely, totally rejected. Completely <laughs> out of hand, yes. You weren't even close. Yes. You're not yeah. even close, buddy. Yeah, but but I think, Steve, in this case, it was a credit limit chain. So I don't know if this, this requirement extends there. But certainly, if you were rejected credit altogether, you would be entitled not just because of this AI-related requirement, just generally to, hey, why is this happening? And there's a there's a standard set of reason codes that they're meant to provide you, right? So that's always been there. Um, I think what is happening now is saying, hey, when you use complex black box models to come up with those decisions, it's not enough um, for you to say, well, it's a black box and the black box said, we should reject you, therefore we will uh, reject you. Or also, it's not enough to say, I think the black box made the decision because of such and such reasons. You have to be really confident in the explanations you give. And I think part of what the CFPB has been saying is the fact that you're using black box models is not an excuse to not provide these reason, uh, reasons pro- accurately. And in fact, if anything, you should be careful of using black box models if you're not confident that you can answer these questions. Well, what if the black box model works really well, like it gives you the results that you want, but you just can't explain it? Like, uh, th- does it limit w- what you can do because you can't explain exactly the, the complexity going on inside? This is a really good question. And I think we probably need to separate the credit angle in the US, which is a very specific requirement. As you know, that there's, there's laws around fair lending, there's laws around um, about around uh, around discrimination, which which kind of make it a very specific area. But if you go beyond lending, uh, John Steve, then I think your question is very interesting because certainly in other parts of the world and even in the U.S. in the past, some regulators have said, "Look, there will be instances where, for example, in image recognition models, right, might be that it's actually working 99.9% of the time." And all you need to do is to have very frequent uh, and and rigorous testing, back testing, so that you keep monitoring that it's not going bad, even though you're not able to explain. Now, that's not for a lending context, but AI is not just used in lending and banking, right? It's used for a whole, or banking or insurance across, it's used for a whole set of other areas. And there, I think there is an argument to be made saying, look, there will be instances where we don't fully understand the complexity. Um, what, what I have generally heard regulators say in the US and elsewhere is that, okay, you can use that in certain low materiality instances, but you must have adequate um, you know, safeguards. So for example, in that facial rec- image recognition kind of model, yeah, keep using it, but test it very frequently so that we, with real data so that you are aware if at any point its accuracy is going down. So, so there is that framework of saying, if you really don't understand it, then don't use it for very high materiality decisions. Uh, and you, when using it for lower materiality ones, keep doing regular regular testing in order to get there. 
the drone can't keep shooting the civilians, that sort of thing. <laughs> no, I think this is a good point. The drone can't should keep shooting the civilians would be, don't use that then, if you don't understand how the drone is. But it's like, well, the drone can't, I don't know, I'm making up, but the drone can't take pictures of buildings. Uh, well, okay, just make sure that, you know, you're regularly checking that the drone is not by mistake taking pictures of buildings, as an example. Right, right. Uh, so uh, how, how do you test uh, a model uh, that you're working or what's what's the good way to test uh, do you do you end up uh, having to have like a synthetic data is that becoming still becoming more of a thing yeah it's a really good question obviously the the oldest way with both of your backgrounds you'll know that the the original ways of course to do back testing which is you do smart ways of splitting up the historical data you have so that you have two or more data sets and then you train the model on one of them and you test it with multiple others. So that's that's quite historical in, in all model risk uh, management, as you know. Uh, I think one of the things that you mentioned is becoming more popular, which is, well, I want to expose this model to unseen situations. How do I create unseen situations? Like one scenarios, of the ways, yeah, exactly, right? scenarios. So, so, and there's two ways of going about it. One of them is to, you know, think of what those unseen situations are, and then, I guess, without an AI, like a human being says, well, actually, if interest rates goes up, I expect the following changes in the other variables. And therefore, let me recreate the, the data set with these changes. That's one way. The other is to leave that to a computer and say, hey, let's do some simulated data sets. And yes, do the robustness testing with that. Now, I think the verdict is still out on synthetic testing in many areas, mainly because synthetic data testing, because it's not yet clear that the synthetic data is always that reliable, but it can certainly give um, some some benefits on, on, on that count. So that's something that uh, we've seen. Uh, recently in, in natural language processing, something that we've been working on, uh, one, one of the things you do is you re replace something with a synonym. So for example, if you have a word saying, a sentence saying, COVID-19 was challenging, and you're trying to do a sentiment analysis from that, you then actually say, well, what if I change challenging to a synonym like difficult? What happens? Did the sentiment change as a result? So you do, a, as you said, a lot of what if scenarios. Um, and depending on the type of model, you can do different things. But really, the crux of it is exposing the model to something it hasn't seen before. That's one way of doing testing. The other is monitoring, ongoing, right? It's like not just doing theoretical, but just continuing to monitor the model very closely and saying, is there a major change in the model's output or in its accuracy or in its fairness metrics on a near, not a real-time basis, but very, very close to like, okay, every day I'm looking at some of the key metrics. And if anything suddenly goes off, I go in and check. So these are the two things, you know, scenario analysis, as you mentioned, using synthetic data and other means and uh, closer monitoring than in the past. So it's interesting because you are describing the problem and how you address it in sort of a technical way. But how would you uh, how would you um, uh, assure a customer that maybe has had either their credit denied or their application for a job in, in New York State denied in a more customer friendly layman way? How, how do you explain all these very complex methods to analyze data to again sort of the end user who will be the recipient of the, the decision? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I don't actually think as a community of kind of policymakers, bank people, technology vendors like ourselves, that we've actually cracked that problem. Because 
it is a paradox. The moment you say, well, I have to use something complex, as you say, you have to use relatively technical ways to do the testing. Um, but you shouldn't want to give all of that complexity to a to an end customer. So I, I think the, the, the verdict, the, there, is, there is no clear agreed way there. But one of the approaches people have taken is that, look, ultimately, it's important to be able to give simple explanations uh, to customers or stakeholders that are impacted. And if that means you have to use simpler models, so be it. If that means you have to convert the complex models that exist out there and, and kind of do simpler interpretations of it, then so be it. So let me give an example of the latter, where you might actually say, I have a pretty technical way of finding out the top drivers of why John was rejected a job in New York State. Okay, but that's like 25 different features. Well, could we group them together into it's John's academic um, background, it's his past experience, it's his, in, you know, whatever, where he lives, and then say, well... This sounds like my dating rejection reasons. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that's that's entitled to fair uh, fair treatment. Um, it's kind not of fair, I, but, I can tell yeah, you. Yeah, but, but, but yeah, so one of the ways people have been, um, have been um, looking at is kind of saying, let's not give them all the gory detail, but can we do a mapping to a relatively standard set of reasons and, and then uh, give the explanation that way. So, so some combination of abstracting out the complexity and giving simple uh, ways of for, for, for the layperson to look at it. And frankly, sometimes just using simpler models as well, if needed. That's, that's how it's been handled. But you asked a very good question to which right now there isn't an answer. How do you give fundamental, uh, you know, simple answers to what is fundamentally a complex technical problem. It's not, it's not that easy to, to, to see that last step. You can give a complex answer, but not sure how you'd give a simple answer yet. Yeah, when you're implementing uh, these sorts of models, you're, you're looking to save time, you're looking to be faster, you're looking to be more efficient. Uh, but it, it seems like we're asking a lot uh, or, or at least not to reinforce uh, prior uh, discrimination or, or uh, issues we've, we've wanted to avoid. Uh, but how much can, I, I guess the AI can only reflect what we put into it uh, if, if there's already um, disadvantaged populations that are going to be rejected for, let's say, credit more often, uh, the, the model will still be like a, an objective arbiter it, it's not is there any is the discussion uh towards not uh making uh, discrimination worse or is there some thought about basing something on gender or race to give some kind of a a, a more advantage to to balance out uh the results a bit more i mean uh, there's definitely yeah, this yeah, might be sorry, way please. past what AI. It's more policy. Um, yeah, but, some of but this, does that some work of this into is it? Yeah, yeah, some of this is policy. Um, so I think first of all, um, certainly there is a lot of worry about not making it worse, and and a lot of the public debate often gets um, gets uh, you know it, it, it's dominated. A lot of the public discussion in the media, even with policymakers, gets dominated by this you know do no further harm kind of argument. However, and I'll give you two examples, both of which are in the media. Recently, there was a pretty big New York Times article about, um, about how race plays a role in home valuations and how, in one instance, an individual who was black kind of 
got one valuation with a in one round and then he got his white colleague to come into the house and replaced all trace of their race and that apparently in a few months got a better rating now yeah yeah we can go a few wow. examples examples like that right dramatic change yeah yeah now there might be I, I don't know the details of that there might have been something that happened in between that genuinely objectively should have caused that but i think the point there and another example is you know somebody talked about i think the new york state law talks about you know algorithmic hiring in china the law talks about even algorithmic allocation of work to gig workers right so you can say oh that can be very unfair with ai but yeah think of the alternative is can we really ensure that a human manager when they allocate work in a in a warehouse or in a delivery firm, they are not biased. So I think that the point is, you're, there is evidence that in some areas, being able to use a lot more data and frankly, just being able to shine a light on saying, can you explain their algorithm how this decision is being made? Well, that's better than the past, where you don't know how the human being was making the decision. Why did they you know, do the valuation? Or you don't know in as much detail. and Maybe the human has limited ability to ingest a lot of data into their head. So there are arguments that both the fact that transparency is demanded more of algorithms than of humans, number one, and algorithms are often able to deal with a lot of additional data elements that a human being could not. Both of these factors can theoretically improve fairness outcomes. It's not about you know positive discrimination. It's actually just saying, I take a broader set of data inputs than a simple human could have taken. And therefore, I might be able to give a better um, outcome. And there is anecdotal and empirical evidence that in some areas, fairness outcomes can be improved. Certainly in some of our clients, we have seen that, that uh, people get more accurate and or more fair or, and or fairer models uh, when they use AI and alternative data sources um, wisely. But the public debate has been more on the fair factor, which is algorithms are going to get it all wrong. Um, you're right, we should push equally to see, well, actually, can algorithms help get it better compared to today? Oh, and you're saying, yeah, at least not, uh, at least eliminating some of the very human flaws uh, yeah. in the process is uh, at least a, a minimum I, part. I, I, we should, we yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example of an insurer, insurer I was talking with. I was very fascinated with what they said. They said, hey, look, uh -huh. we, we insure pubs this was in the uk we insure pubs for fire insurance okay as soon as you and... said pubs we knew it was in the uk yeah <laughs> exactly so, so we insure pubs in the for fire insurance now if i was to send human inspectors everywhere there's just no way the the guy or girl would be able to cover everything and or give an accurate information instead i've asked people to upload now of course there's a chance of fraud there uh, pictures of where their fire exits are how prominent they are and how big they are within the pub premises and on that basis we i mean this is not even ai it's just like actually it's i'm taking out the human subjectivity of the data collection process at least and replacing it with a rel relatively standard ask saying i want to see the full dimensions of your pub and then i want to see how prominent and how easy to get out the exit for fire is and that will give me a sense of how much importance you are providing to this. And that will give me, a, that's a really interesting thing. There's no AI in this, but what is there is to say, I'm gonna replace half-baked subjective opinions from human inspectors who may or may not have gone there, who may or may not be too tired, and instead replace it with a standard way of collecting data, which then of course can use AI for image recognition. But that additional data in a standardized form is what is making the difference to, to make it more reliable.
So you actually you're uniquely qualified for for this question because you you live in Singapore, you work for a U.S. company, you've also done work with the Bank of England. How would you say that um, North America, Europe, and Asia are tackling this issue of explainable AI, and how how do the, their approaches differ? And is there any chance to standardize on on a global scale how we deal with with this issue? There are some differences, um, uh, but my my broader view is. Will there be a single set of rules around AI around the world? No, but will the different rules across different countries, across these three continents um, and individual countries look broadly similar? On that, I think the answer is already yes. So let me elaborate. So what are the apparent differences? Well, the the conventional wisdom would be Europe would be the strictest and kind of most worried about uh, outcomes on human dignity, human rights, et cetera. Um, U.S. Uh, sorry, Ch- China traditionally would have been, um, you know, the most liberal in terms of how data is used and how aggressively technology can use uh, can be used, and U.S. would be somewhere in between. That was the conventional wisdom. In reality, it's been turned on its head. Actually, um, it's China which has some of the strictest laws on algorithmic usage right now. So, for example, as I mentioned, in China there are. There, there is a law now that, at least according to the English translation that I've read, AI-enabled English translation, uh, that actually says, you know, the use of algorithms to, to uh, break, uh, you know, allocate work to gig workers, even that has to be governed. Or you cannot do pricing based on personal information. You have to have relatively standard ways of pricing. So that's something that's there in China. So China probably has the most... Uh, the most advanced on the strictest laws right now on some aspects of algorithms. Yeah, I, I just saw recently, I think yesterday or today, uh, where uh, I, I think a lot of the, their big tech companies have to turn in their algorithms now. And yes, people are wondering, the, what are they going to do with it? They can they won't even be able to understand it. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair question that, you know, understanding those is, is difficult in itself. But, but that particular point is something that I think in the U.S. also many, many, uh, many are demanding that, that big tech expose some of their algorithms so that people can test and see whether they're fair, whether they're lead. It's not only always about fair, right? It's also about, you know, are you leading to the wrong behaviors? So broadly, I would say China has some laws. EU has a draft law, which has gone through apparently 4,000 plus suggestions on how to change it. They also have a Data Services and uh, Digital Services and Digital Markets Act, which collectively provide that. And in the U.S., as you would expect, it's a bit more fragmented. So in some ways, you can argue, well, different states are doing different things. There's the uh, California Privacy Act, which has some elements of this. Will there be a nationwide regulation? So it's easy to be gloomy about this. But actually, if you look at what all of them are saying, if you exclude a little bit of the China requirements around, oh, you must use AI and data for morally and ethically appropriate outcomes and you know patriotic outcomes. If you l- ignore that limited bit, there's actually a broad level of alignment across the three continents, across countries. Broadly, people care about the same things. They care about not using something that is too complex if it is for high stakes, which is kind of transparency or uh, or, or explainability. They care obviously about not having unfair outcomes for individuals uh, or groups. Uh, they care about model robustness, that thing you mentioned about stress testing and scenario. Don't build something that works in one particular data set and then cr- clash- crashes. Um, and they care about uh, a lot about the, the ability to have fallbacks if the algorithm fails, right? So there's a, you know, what happens if the, 
if, if the algorithm fails, do you have adequate operational resilience, et cetera? Increasingly, they also care about security risks. Like, is there a risk of data poisoning, kind of uh, intentional poisoning of the data to impact the algorithm? So these themes that I'm naming one by one, they're common across. Uh, so, so my overall view on that is, Yes, there are differences, and there will continue to be different laws in different countries. We're not going to get a global AI law in, in some way. Um, but broadly, most regulators are agreed on, on, on what the key elements are. It's just the relative stress on things like fair lending or fair outcomes might be higher in some geographies like the U.S. compared to others. What would you like to see uh, come out in the next uh, few years in terms of... Uh... Well, I guess AI models or their application that uh, you consider like maybe an obstacle or, or something you'd like to see more implemented down the line. So I, I think it's linked to your previous question. I think the broad contours of what people should do when they are implementing algorithms is clear. I think where there are gaps right now is, you know, how do I specifically test for fairness in either in the case of specific use cases or so, for example, is it enough that women have no less than 80 percent of the chance of a man getting a job, uh, comparatively speaking, or is it does it have to be 90 percent or does it have to be 99 percent? Right. Some of those questions certainly our clients have been asking, which is where does the threshold lie? Um, so it's not that I, I don't know that we have to measure fairness. It's like what threshold should be there. So some degree of clarity, perhaps by use case rather than a generic across the board um, threshold, but some degree of clarity on the kinds of thresholds that people should adhere to when assessing things like fairness. Or how do you assess the accuracy of your explanations? Some standards around that. I think that would be desirable. Um, whether that will happen from government or policy agencies or whether that will come through industry efforts to come up with common standards. I don't know. And actually, in some ways, I don't care as long as it's well accepted that this mm -hmm. is the standard way or, or this is the standard level of accuracy you expect in any explanations. This is the kind of rough range of metrics and thresholds that you should use for uh, for fairness. This is a well def well accepted way of testing the robustness or stability of a model. I think if the more we get industry agreement on that, either through fiat from regulators or through, through industry policy group initiatives, the better. That's, I think, what I would desire. Because my biggest fear, just to close this off, is that actually in the absence of that, this will wither on the vine. People will get so worried about the bad effects that they'll forget that there were some good things you could have done with it and you huh. know, won't have enough yeah. use of AI. Uh, so some clear targets where you can aim your efforts towards and yes. not have to kind of like keep bouncing around yes, and then keep you can guessing, just keep exactly. building. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it makes sense. Do you find that the incumbent banks uh, treat the regulations differently than, say, the the new the disruptors in terms of how, how they explain their decisions and have them more more XAI, or are they all on the same sort of on the same page in terms of the need to do this? So I can only talk as somebody who kind of has been in an incumbent bank in the past and, and has been in front of um, multiple US regulators in, in addition to elsewhere. What I would say is if you work at an incumbent bank and you know the, the personal and professional cost of getting things wrong, you probably are a little bit sensitive to, oh, we must do things um, the right way and kind of be you know, really sure that we've got this right. Whereas if you've come in not necessarily if you are in a fintech, but if you don't have that background of, 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 
of how financial services is regulated or another regulated industry, then it's not that you don't understand the concept. It's just that you don't get the seriousness often as much. And you see some of this, not necessarily in the AI regulation space, but you can see this in know your customer, KYC kind of requirements. Several fintechs and digital banks have, have been burnt on that front. They just did not, they just underestimated how much regulators care about that. So I would say it's not a matter of, conceptually both, both groups know what's important, but in practice, incumbent banks tend to have more people with a firsthand experience of what happens when things go wrong. And therefore they probably tend to put more energy and attention into it. They, they tend to get burned more or they have a longer history. They have a longer, they have more scars. Yeah, I can speak <laughs> yeah. to this from personal experience as well, yeah. Yeah, uh, really interesting. Uh, thank you. Thank you for joining us uh, again. And we look forward to hearing uh, an update uh, in the future and hearing uh, what new things pop up in AI. Thank you very much indeed for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks. That's Shamik Kundu, the Head of Financial Services and Chief Strategy Officer at TrueERA. Please hit subscribe to keep up with the latest in fintech news. And thank you for listening.